The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 5, Of Providence, Paragraphs 1, 2, and 3. Paragraph 1. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness and mercy. Paragraph 2 Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, He orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Paragraph 3. God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. On January 6th, 1850, A young Charles Haddon Spurgeon was on his way to church. Unfortunately that day a snowstorm had come and a blizzard had stopped him from going to the normal church that he would have worshipped. Instead he arrived at a small primitive Methodist church and entered into the building. That day Spurgeon was in the wrong church and indeed when he went into the Methodist church the normal preacher hadn't turned up. Spurgeon, the wrong church, the wrong preacher, the wrong place, the wrong time, you might say. And yet that day, for Charles Haddon Spurgeon, everything was to change. One of the members of that church got up to preach, and he preached from Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon remembered that the man did not pronounce the words properly. The sermon was not particularly good in earthly terms, And the sermon was very short and the preacher stretched it out as long as he could. But eventually, as the sermon reached its conclusion, the wrong preacher with the wrong sermon looked at young Spurgeon, who was a stranger to the church, and said, Young man, you look very miserable and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, 
look to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon remembered years later, There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Spurgeon had not planned to go to the wrong church that day, nor had he planned to sit listening to the wrong sermon. But under the providence of God, Spurgeon was exactly where he needed to be. And it was that day that the Lord worked and brought young Charles Haddon Spurgeon to salvation. Chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession concerns itself with God's providence. And it was by the providence of God that Spurgeon was saved in the way that he was saved. And Chad Van Dixhorn puts it this way, Providence simply means God's arrangement and care of all things in time. Providence simply means God's arrangement and care of all things in time. If you want to impress your grandmother today, perhaps you will explain to her a Latin phrase, Jus pro nobis, which means God for us. And here for the Reformed Christian, we see God for us in his providence, his care, his upholding of all things. Paragraph 1 of chapter 5 begins by saying that God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least. Here we see God's providential care, his arrangement and care of all things in all time. God upholds all things. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, where we read that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Today, if you ever marvel at how the universe holds together, it holds together because the Lord upholds it by his word, by his power, by his might. And not only do we believe that God upholds all things, but as Reformed believers, we state that he directs all things. The world has not been set on some random course. The Lord did not push the start button all those years ago and then remove himself from creation. Everything that ever has happened has been directed by the hand of God. And he directs and also disposes or inclines all creatures. On the day that Spurgeon was converted, he could have just pushed on through the snowstorm. Perhaps he would have fallen by the wayside and died. Perhaps he eventually would have turned around and gone home. But no, that day Spurgeon was disposed or inclined to go into the Methodist church. The preacher who was supposed to be there that day perhaps got up, looked at the snowstorm and thought that he would never make it to church and so was inclined to get back into bed. What if that individual had have been inclined or disposed to get into the snowstorm and make his way to church and preach an altogether different kind of sermon? No, these men were disposed or inclined by the Lord to do what it was they were supposed to do. God directs, disposes and governs all creatures. There is no king but the king of kings. The Lord governs this whole world. There may be individuals who have a tremendous amount of power, but ultimately it is the Lord alone who governs all creatures, and he governs their actions 
and things. These opening words of the first paragraph of chapter 5 show us the providential hand of our God. He directs, disposes, governs all creatures, actions and things, even from the greatest to the least. No one can escape the providential hand of the Lord. Of course, all of this is supported by Scripture. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34, the great king Nebuchadnezzar has his understanding returned to him and he praises the Lord and cries out that all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and God does according to his will. None can stay his hand or say unto God, what are you doing? Nebuchadnezzar understood the providential hand of God And it is repeated in Psalm 135 and verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deep places. There is no one or nowhere that is hidden from the hand of God. He does what he wants in the deepest part of the sea and he does what he wants in the highest of heavens. As Paul preaches in Athens, he states this categorically. In verse 24 of Acts chapter 17, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul speaks truth to the ancient Greeks, and he could say the same thing to the Romans and to all the empire since, that the providential God has given life to all mankind and he has allotted time periods for us to live and the boundaries of where we live. But our confession and the word of God shows us that God is not just concerned with the ancient Greeks, the mighty Romans, or any of the empires that we know from the history books. He is concerned and governs and provides for the greatest down to the least. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 10 and verse 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And yet not one of them shall fall to the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, for you are worth more than many sparrows. The Lord governs and rules over the sparrows as he does for humanity. And today, my friends, even the very hairs on your head are numbered by our providential God. And as this opening paragraph continues, we're told that God's governing and upholding of all of us is by his most wise and holy providence. If God's providence is, as Chad Van Dixhorn suggests, God's arrangement and care of all things in time, if Deus pro nobis, which means God for us, can sum up his wonderful providence, then it is an encouragement for us to realise that his providence is most wise and holy. Our God is not a vindictive or nasty or evil God, and so everything that pans out in our lives can be trusted and accepted to be for our good from God's wise and holy hand. 
We read in Proverbs 15 and verse 3 that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He beholds both the evil and the good. So he upholds and governs both the evil and the good. And he does it not meeting evil with evil, but full of holiness and wisdom. In Psalm 104 and verse 24, we read, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your riches. And in Psalm 145 and verse 17, we read that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. God is not a tyrant. Human history is not directed by a vindictive, malicious dictator. Today we can take comfort in the fact that all of history and all of our lives has providentially been planned out for us by a most holy and wise God. And we're told that this providence comes according to God's infallible foreknowledge. The Lord's knowledge is perfect. It is infallible. It is without error. His foreknowledge of all things is beyond our comprehension. And we read in Acts chapter 15 and verse 18, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He knows every path, every road, every sparrow, every human. His foreknowledge is complete. And therefore God's most holy and wise providence, his governing of all things, is according to his infallible foreknowledge. Our God can be trusted. And today our God has not made mistakes in your life or in mine. Certainly at times we might feel incredibly sore at how life has turned. We might look back and wonder and ponder decisions that we have made or events that have happened. But my friends today, trust God. His foreknowledge is perfect and his providence is holy and wise and good. And we know that every path the river takes, guided by the providential hand of God, is the best path and the right path. The Lord's providence is not based on the counsel that he has taken with other so-called gods. The Lord does not ask the advice of the United Nations, the EU, or all the gathered heads of state. As the opening paragraph of chapter 5 states, God's providence is by the free and immutable counsel of his own will. I trust that you are already familiar with these terms if you have been listening to this podcast so far. But again, to remind you, if God is immutable, it means that he is unchanging. He takes counsel, if you like, with himself, his own will. And that counsel does not change. It is free. It is not based on anyone or anything. And so today, God's providence is by the free and immutable counsel of his own will. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. We have obtained in God an inheritance. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. God does what he wants. And we read in the 33rd Psalm. The Lord brings the counsel of the heathen to nothing. He makes the devices of the people have no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. 
And as the opening paragraph comes to a close, we see the purpose of God's providence. We have marveled, I hope, at God's infallible foreknowledge, how he knows everything and how he governs everything by his free and immutable or unchanging will. The Lord's providence is good and holy and full of wisdom. So what is the purpose of providence? To the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness and mercy. Providence should lead to praise. In Isaiah 63 and verse 14, we see this truth underlined. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. God's providence shows us the glory of his name. And as part of the church of Jesus Christ, we see the purpose of providence. Ephesians 3 and verse 10 says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's plan for his people, the church, is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. And in the Old Testament, in Genesis 45 and verse 7, again we see God's providential hand. Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And in Romans 9 verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's providence leads to praise. And today, if you were to stop this podcast right at this moment, I would urge you to spend time in the praise and worship of God. Every single moment of your life has been guided by his providential, loving, caring hand towards you. The good moments and the bad, the moments of joy and the moments of sadness and sorrow. Every day was written in the Lord's book for you, when as yet not a single day had taken place. Deus pro nobis, God for us, is our cry today. We marvel at God's providence throughout human history and in our own lives. And so today we do, as Psalm 145 and verse 7 suggests, we shall sing of God's righteousness. The second paragraph of chapter 5 of the Confession returns to speak of first and secondary causes. Or in other words, how does God bring his providential plans to pass? Chad Van Dixhorn's quote that we've already quoted partly is worth looking at here. God's perfect providence, he says, which is his arrangement and care of all things in time, is the working out of his perfect predestination, which is his planning and ordering of all things in eternity. So God has planned and ordered all things in eternity, and providentially he works them out and cares and plans them in time. God is the first cause of everything we read here in paragraph 2. In relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. God is the first cause of all things. 
There is nothing beyond his control. Nothing happens without his decree and say. Everything must come to pass immutably. It cannot change and infallibly without error as according to God's decree. When we're thinking about God, the first cause, and how he uses secondary causes, I believe a wonderful verse to help us in this is found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. We see the first and second causes here. Jesus, says Peter, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here is God, the first cause the one who has decreed that Jesus would be given over for sin as a sacrifice once and for all. But how did the Lord do this? Well, it was by the secondary cause of lawless men. Peter says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The first cause, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, says Peter. The second cause. The Lord does not need any one of us to do anything. But by the same providence, God orders all things to fall out according to the nature of secondary causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God uses secondary means to bring his purposes to pass. The Westminster Divines here divide these secondary means into three. Necessary causes, free causes, or contingent causes. And indeed, if something is contingent, it means a cause that is dependent upon something else. Firstly, necessary causes. Things that must come about. So in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22, we read, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. The Lord has this established as a necessary secondary cause. The Lord has decreed that we will have heat and night and day. How does he bring it about? By times and seasons and by the moon and by the stars. We see this in Jeremiah 31 and 35 as well. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Here are necessary secondary causes. The confession continues to say that there are also free secondary causes. And we see this in the Old Testament. The Lord says in Exodus 21 and verse 13, If a man did not lie in wait for his neighbor to kill him, but the Lord had let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. The Lord is establishing here sanctuary cities. An individual who unintentionally took the life of another could by his choice of a city of refuge, a free cause, be spared. This notion is repeated in Deuteronomy 19 and verse 5. When someone goes into the forest with his neighbour to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbour so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Here God uses a secondary cause to bring someone's life to a close. But that individual 
who had innocently taken a life, would have freedom of means, as Chad Van Dixhorn says, to preserve his life, some ways to cause his chance of survival to increase. He could run, says Van Dixhorn, to one of the cities of refuge. This is what we mean by a free secondary cause. And finally in this section, we speak of contingent secondary causes, causes that depend on something else. The prophet Micaiah said that if Ahab, king of Israel, would return in peace, then the Lord had not spoken by Micaiah. Or in other words, Micaiah's integrity as a prophet depended upon the future of Ahab. It was contingent upon it. And so later in 1 Kings 22 and verse 34, Ahab lost his life. The Lord, in showing the integrity of his prophet, did it with the contingent secondary cause of taking Ahab's life. The picture here is that the Lord is involved in every part of human history and of our human existence. It is this truth that the Westminster Divines are outlining for us in chapter 5 of the Confession. The Lord uses secondary causes to bring about his purposes. They are necessary, they are free, and they are contingent. And the Lord can even use the actions of others to bring about his purposes, even if the individuals in question have no clue. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 6 to 7, speaking of the Assyrians, the Lord says, Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy, and to cut off nations not a few. The Assyrians had no clue what the Lord was using them to do, but the Lord in his providence and sovereignty was working out his plan through their actions. The Lord is the first cause, but he uses secondary causes to bring about his purposes. And finally, in paragraph 3, we read that God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So throughout scripture, we see God using means. In Acts 27, we see how God uses ordinary means. Paul warns the centurion and the soldiers in verse 31 that they were not to flee and escape the ship in the lifeboat. Paul says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And how was it that God would save these men? Well, later when they were shipwrecked in verse 44, we're told that they escaped on planks or in pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The Lord used the means of swimming to shore on bits of the shipwrecked boat to save these men. And in Isaiah 55 and verse 10, we read that the Lord uses the ordinary means of the rain coming down, the snow from heaven, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And in Hosea 2, 21-22, the Lord uses the ordinary means of the sky and the earth working together to produce the corn and the wine and the oil. The Lord uses ordinary means, but he is not bound by these ordinary means. 
our confession says that he is free to work without them, above them, or against them at his pleasure. When we say that he can work without them, we see examples of this in Scripture. In Hosea chapter 1 and verse 7, the Lord says that he will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God, but he will not save them by bow or sword or battle or horses or horsemen. The Lord will not save his people by these ordinary means. God will save them without those means. In Matthew 4 and verse 4, Jesus tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here the Lord Jesus tells us that yes, the ordinary means of bread will feed a human, but we are not to live by that bread alone. We also need the word of God. The Lord works without ordinary means here and uses his extraordinary word to sustain us. And in Job 34 and verse 20, the Lord says in his word that in a moment they die, speaking of enemy soldiers. At midnight, the people are shaken and pass away and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. Again here, the Lord shows us that he does not need to use ordinary means. And at times he can work above ordinary means. Miracles and extraordinary occurrences are sometimes part of God's providential plan. We see that in Romans chapter 4 verses 19 to 20. Abraham did not weaken in faith, says Paul, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. God works above ordinary means, and he gives a child to an old man and an old barren woman. And finally, the Lord can work against ordinary means at his pleasure. We see in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 6, that the axe head floated on the water. And in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 27, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were cast into the fire, but not a hair on their heads was singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. God can do what he wants. He does it by ordinary means, secondary causes, but sometimes, if he wishes, he can do it without any of these things, working without, above, and against these ordinary means at his pleasure. Today, I hope, my friends, you have marveled at the providential hand of God. Today, as we close, we do so reflecting on the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. I love this question, I love its answer, and it sums up for me, God for us. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Saviour Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Providence is God's arrangement and care of all things in time. Deus pro nobis. 
God for us. After today's whopper of an episode, we've got nine questions for you to consider. Question one. How does Chad Van Dixhorn define providence? Question two. What does the Latin phrase dus pro nobis mean? Question three. Define what we mean when we say that God directs, disposes and governs all creatures. Question four. What two words are ascribed to God's providence in paragraph one and why are they a comfort to the believer? Question five. Define the words immutable and infallible. Question six. What is the purpose of God's providence? Question seven. Support biblically the assertion that God is the first cause of all things. Question eight. What are secondary causes? And what do we mean when we describe them as either necessary, free or contingent? And question nine. What do we speak of when we talk of ordinary means? And how can God work without them, above them, or against them? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn, and until next time, this we confess.